0: Welcome, this is Pat Malone of the New York Justice Initiative's Pro Bono Net. Today, I'm speaking with Lisa Smith, Chief Counsel, Family and Gender Violence, Office of Policy and Planning of the New York State Office of Court Administration. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you and
1: good afternoon.
0: So we'll be talking about domestic violence cases in the court system. And our goal today is to welcome pro bonos and new practitioners and give them an overview, a sense of the process, what kinds of cases, how cases uh, come before this court or these courts, and what they can expect in court. Can you start us off with some basic definitions and overviews of the court's role and
1: process? So domestic violence cases in the court system are generally considered to be cases that involve violence or harassment between intimate partners or um, people who are dating. The cases come into the system in multiple ways. So for one type of case would be coming into the criminal justice system. And in the criminal justice system, domestic violence cases might be either a misdemeanor which is considered to be a case where the maximum imprisonment penalty is less than a year in jail or a felony, which are cases where imprisonment could be for greater than a year. And those cases could be in specialized misdemeanor domestic violence courts in a criminal court or specialized felony domestic violence courts. Now, there are cases that come into the court system that are not criminal and involve domestic violence and those are in what we call our civil court system and in some jurisdictions that's referred to as a family court and it really depends what state and county you happen to be in. So for people who do not wish a criminal justice response or where the incident doesn't quite rise to the level of a criminal response, those in those cases the victim can go to the civil court in the county and um, access perhaps a te- an order of protection or any other services that that court might have available for the victim of domestic violence. The, the last court I'm going to describe is something that's called an integrated domestic violence court, and those exist around the country, and although not everywhere. And in those courts, the parties that I just described, people who are in the criminal justice system and people who decide to access the civil system or a family court system, when you have cases in both of those systems involving the same parties, in the states that have this available, they will have an integrated domestic violence court. The concept is one family, one court, and they will take all of the cases involving the victim and the abuser And put them into the one court part so that the parties are not, you know, um, traveling all over to have uh, their day in court. Thank you. I'm assuming that uh, New York State then
0: has these three different ways that a domestic violence case uh, may move through the court system.
1: Right. So in New York State, we have obviously the criminal justice system. We have the family courts and we have in uh, we have 42 integrated domestic violence courts in New York State. Forty two counties have uh, integrated domestic violence courts.
0: Right. Thank you. And maybe you can give some examples of how a case might come in that will help us understand those, you know, the structure, this the split or this. Three different
1: pathways. So, in the criminal system, cases come in due to an arrest. And um, and I just, as a as an aside, I want to mention that people have heard a lot about mandatory arrest policies in New York State. And New York State does have mandatory arrest in domestic violence cases. It's important to know though that mand in mandatory arrest is sometimes misunderstood. Although there is mandatory arrest when there a felony has been committed or there's a violation of an order of protection, uh, victims or domestic bond survivors who are involved in a situation that's um, considered to be a misdemeanor or less uh, by law enforcement can opt out of the arrest process. So if, uh, So they can call the police and tell the police, though, that they would rather not go forward with the case. So, so there's a quite a bit of misunderstanding, actually, about mandatory arrest. So that just applies to misdemeanors other than violations of orders of protection. So misdeme- if there's a misdemeanor arrest, it goes to the local criminal court, and um, felonies are initially arraigned uh, in the local criminal court, and then in case- if there's an indictment, it will go on to the Supreme Court. But those are handled in the criminal system. And remember, in the criminal system, it's the assistant district attorney who is actually the the lawyer on in the prosecution of the case and the defendant obviously has always has always has representation by a defense attorney. The 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 victim is working with the district attorney, although you know one of the big issues that comes up of course is whose case is it anyway, right? Is it the prosecutor's case and how much say, does the victim have in that case, and, um, you know, that's a very complicated issue. Many DA's offices also have victim advocates to work with the survivors. Um, You know, after many, many years, that's, you know, been considered to be a very important component of domestic violence in both misdemeanor and felony cases. In In the family courts, the civil side of the system, so those are, interestingly enough, pro se courts, meaning that a a survivor can go into the family court, fill out a family offense petition alleging um, whatever occurred with the abuser. It doesn't necessarily have to rise to the level of a crime. It can be a level of harassment that is unacceptable. And they can then ask the judge based on that family offense petition to issue a temporary order of protection on behalf of the victim um so that's a, in those cases that's victim initiated there's there could be law enforcement involvement a victim might have gone to um law enforcement and law enforcement might have said to them go to the family court but those can be initiated by the victim in Many family courts, uh, an attorney will be assigned to the victim in those cases when they're trying to um, access a family offense petition, or at least the next time the case is on. One of the important things to remember is that in in the civil court, in the family court, when the victim goes in to get the family offense petition, remember, it's what we call in the court system ex parte. Nobody knows they're going they're going on their own because something has happened that has convinced the survivor that they need a temporary order protection. When they get to the court and they ask the judge for the temporary order, the judge is hearing only from the survivor. The judge will issue, if he or she believes it's appropriate, a temporary order. They will give the victim a next date and say that the respondent, the abuser, must be served before the next court date, when both of them will appear. In most of our courts, the victim will then be, if, if the victim cannot afford um, uh, their own attorney, they'll be afforded one by the court. The integrated domestic violence courts are, operate a little differently. That's In those courts, the case gets to the integrated domestic violence judge, basically just because the court system, our clerks, realize that the family is now pending in multiple courts and they will transfer the cases on their own to the Integrated Domestic Violence Court. Thank you.
0: And that raises a couple of questions for me. One is who can be a domestic violence advocate? Is that an attorney position, a social worker position, or something that even a well-trained volunteer could do?
1: Advocates are especially in So in the family, in the civil side, in the family offense side, um, advocates are very, very important. And um, many times the the survivor will have worked with an advocate before they will go in and attempt to get the family offense petition. Now, most of the advocates are part of an advocate uh, domestic violence advocacy agency. For instance, there is a one of the programs that we work on together is something called an advocate assisted remote family offense petition. So as an example, I described survivors going into the family court or the civil system and attempting to get a temporary order protection by walking in, explaining the problem to the clerk and filling out a family offense petition. The project that we have with um, pro bono Uh, .NET is a a project where the survivor can reach out to an advocacy organization. That advocacy organization has that same family offense petition, and the survivor can be uh, discussing the case remotely with the advocacy organization, and the advocacy organization can fill out all of the paperwork, all of this being done virtually. Nobody's walking in anywhere and the advocacy organization fills out that family offense petition, sends it to the judge, to the clerk, who then gives it to the judge, and then the clerk and the judge will very quickly schedule the hearing, which can also be done remotely. So advocates can work with domestic violence victims remotely in that way. There are many advocacy organizations that are, are actually cited in courthouses, or the advocacy organization will cite some um, one of their uh, staff in a courthouse to specifically be there to assist domestic violence victims as they come into the family court. Advocacy organizations, you know, all have actually different requirements, obviously, for um. Uh you know, for the people that they hire to work uh with them as domestic violence advocates, and obviously it requires quite a bit of training. Advocates can go into the family court with um the petitioner this the survivor um so to help them through the process in the core part uh, in front of the judge
0: thank you so you've got us a Good big picture, right on process and structure let's talk about your role you know what what do you do within the court system?
1: So I oversee those criminal domestic violence courts that we were talking about, and the integrated domestic violence courts and um a lot of the policy work that uh, that we that we discuss. That and that impacts the courts. So litigate so things that the legislature is proposing that impacts um, the court system as it relates to domestic violence. And of course, I do a lot of work with other state agencies with whom uh, our domestic violence work intersects, as well as the um, hundreds of advocacy organizations that exist in the state of New York. And there are there are many many opportunities to join, um, you know, uh, different. There are also so the advocacy organizations, you know, often have meetings. Uh, sometimes they're regional. Sometimes they're led by the New York State Office for the Prevention of Domestic Violence. It's referred to as OPDV. I will sit in on the regional meetings to hear what is going. Generally, they're speaking about what is going wrong um, in the in uh, and impacting our domestic violence survivors negatively and what or what problems exist in the court system as they relate, in fact, to anybody in the court system, be it the district attorney's offices, the defense um, attorneys, the defendants and the litigants on both sides in the family court to work through procedures that are working or not working. So, you know, it's um, overseeing a lot of different issues in the court system as it relates to victims of domestic violence.
0: And what are some of the common or key issues that practitioners might expect going into um, court on a domestic violence
1: case? So... um, in the so we talked a little bit about the criminal side, and of course there are the the there are no practitioners on the criminal side. That's only the district attorney and then um, defense attorneys. You know, I think just as I mentioned before, one of the larger issues on the criminal side, uh, which is worth an entire separate podcast, is the concept of you know who, you know the how much. Um, The voice of the survivor should direct the criminal case um, and where, you know, where that takes the criminal case. And I think everybody can imagine, you know, all of the very complicated issues um, that, you know, arise there. So. On the civil side where you have practitioners and um, those are generally those are civil attorneys, working with domestic violence victims, most often when they're filing these family offense petitions. So, of course, the initial temporary order of protection, as I said, is ex parte. But the next appearance, the respondent is now there. So the issue of con- of continuing that order of protection when the respondent is present and giving a- another side of the story obviously, uh, supporting the survivor's need for the order of protection and explaining the risk um, and the history is the is is something that's very important uh, for the survivor and for the practitioner to be able to communicate to the judge that they're appearing before. Now, many domestic violence victims also, have visitation and custody issues. So it's very, very common as a result of a family offense petition to also um, a petition for visit for changes in visitation and custody for obvious reasons. And of course, visitation and custody litigation can become, um, you know, incredibly difficult and make a domestic violence survivor feel incredibly vulnerable because it then involves their children. So uh, the lens of domestic violence in the home and how that should impact on visitation and custody decisions is often a very, very big issue for um, people who are practicing in the family court. Now, a very big issue now is also firearms. These st- Many state legislatures have uh, passed quite a bit of firearm legislation, and implementing the legislation, of course, is different than just passing the legislation. So, of course, the courts must implement the legislation that um, is directed at the courts, and there's quite a bit of it. When a temporary order of protection is issued, on behalf of a survivor in any court system, the defendant or respondent must surrender firearms. Well, first I should say, first the judge is going to check off. Almost always, not always. They have. They can obviously listen to. Um, they're going to listen to why, but they will often uh, direct surrender of the firearms. And that has to take place immediately for obvious reasons. And making sure that firearms surrender took place. And by the way, firearms includes rifles and shotguns. And I think everybody listening to this podcast knows that depending on where you live, it could be very, very likely that the abuser is in possession, if not of a handgun, for sure of firearms and shotguns. So the legislation applies to everything. And it has to be surrendered. And if the firearm is not surrendered, that should be followed up on by law enforcement. You know, firearm surrender is something that we've spent, the court has spent a lot of time on, especially trying to make sure that there is, are no gaps in the surrender, but also carefully listening to the voices of survivors who are often very unnerved by um the idea of forcing somebody to surrender their firearm because they feel that uh, that can anger somebody even more. So that's a very, very complicated issue. In fact, the legislature in New York recently passed a law that directed the courts. This is very unusual, but it's actually legislated that whenever a judge issues a temporary order of protection, the judge must, must, inquire of the criminal defendant or the respondent on the civil side of the family court whether or not they are in possession of firearms. And if so, of course, the judge will be telling the, um, uh, the telling them to surrender them immediately. So the legislature is insisting on a conversation about firearms which has never happened before, and that legislation was effective a few months ago, and a a directive from the courts, uh, you know, from the Office of Court Administration to all of the judges about how to implement that legislation um, was communicated.
0: Mm. And what are the possible outcomes for a domestic violence case in court? What kind of you know special programs? And you yeah. mentioned mis- so that's really interesting charges.
1: yeah, and that's a really interesting question because I think that one of the kind of misunderstandings in general is um is is it is, is a misunderstanding about options. So on the criminal side. There are, you know, I I referred early on to misdemeanors and felonies and I I structured the difference between them around imprisonment. But that's just a legal way of explaining the difference on in misdemeanors and, and most domestic violence cases on the criminal side are misdemeanor arrests, meaning that the level of assault in the case, the level of injury as a result of the assault falls into a lower level of injury. Fortunately, you know, obviously every case matters, but just just for everybody's understanding, the the vast majority are misdemeanors as opposed to felonies, which are either repeated violation of orders of protection or involve weapons for the most part, for the most part. In the misdemeanor arena, there are many, many options in terms of Listening to the voice of the survivor, coupled with um, making a decision about options in terms of sentencing. And I think that's where the voice of the survivor is especially important because, you know, the reality of many of these cases is that, especially depending on the age, if there are children involved, these people on the misdemeanors, you know, where people are not going, you know, it's not a horrific assault and they're not going to be incarcerated for the next 15 years. These people will be interacting in some way around their children for a very long time. So figuring out what that should look like really is where the survivor's voice is very, very important. There are cases in the criminal system, and this is true in the family also, where options include, and so in the civil system and the criminal system, this, there's, there's, it's very commonly, um, it's common that uh, sentencing or uh, dispositions of the cases can be similar in that there are abusive partner intervention programs that can be used in the, on the if you on the family side, on the family offense petition side, and on the criminal side, and those abusive partner intervention programs can, many of them are 26 weeks. Sometimes there's free. Some of them are free. Some of them are sliding scale. They involve different kinds of group meetings and um, and you know and and personal meetings with people who lead these types of programs. So that's. Potentially part of um the disposition of a case, if the survivor says that there this is a um, the person has a substance abuse disorder, be it alcohol or drugs, drug treatment can be a substantial part of the case if it's a mental health issue which the survivor is going to know, and it's very common for them to come in and tell um the judge that you know the person has significant mental health struggles. Mental health treatment can be a part of the disposition of the case. And, you know, I've seen judges, you know, fashion, um, uh, depending again on, on what the survivor has to say about what is actually happening in the home. At the same time, the judge is going to be seriously considering risk and safety. Right. So for safety reasons, it might be that there is a specific type of order of protection in effect that keeps the abuser uh, from contacting the victim at all. So none of these things are exclusive. Right. You can send somebody to a mental health treatment and still say that you have to stay away from the home, place of employment, school, et cetera, et cetera, that you cannot contact the person using any form of communication, be that texting, email, you know, Snapchat, anything. Okay. And, um, and there's been a lot of work in the area of um, technology and the stalking that can take place through technology and judges can, fashion-specific orders around that for the safety of the victim. So there's a lot of options in the courts on on all sides in terms of handling domestic violence cases. And then if you are looking at a very high-risk case, it could be that the judge and the survivor think that the only thing that will keep the survivor safe is incarceration. And when that happens, then that's what the potential sentence might be in that situation.
0: Hmm. And you mentioned that there are many options. Uh, The ones that you've just described, are those just on the criminal side? Is there a separate? No,
1: oh, no, no, no. That's what I I was saying. They're absolutely on the incarceration, except in very limited circumstances, is not part of the civil or family court um, disposition in general of a case. But all of those other options are frequently part of, um, of the disposition of a case in the family court. A family court might add a parenting skills program, you know, um, because it might be that the petitioner, the survivor, wants a parenting skills program for uh, the respondent in the case. Uh, family court can, can include support, paying child support as part of of the disposition of a case. Support proceedings are are actually a separate division of the family court, but obviously the family court or civil court judge, depending on where you are, who um, has a family offense petition before them and a visitation and custody petition is able to look in, uh, in their case management systems to see if in fact there's also a support problem. And if there isn't already a support petition, a support petition can begin because the case is there and the petitioner, the litigant, the, the survivor needs that help.
0: Thank you. And with so much at stake, I imagine that the role of advocates or I don't know if the courts allow accompaniment um, but also the role of of attorneys is important, right? If you have a if you have a person who is has been abused or is a survivor, that they may not feel confident or able to speak up in a way that best protects their interests. And can you talk yeah. a little bit about you know what are the opportunities to volunteer or where someone would go to learn more if they were interested in working with survivors?
1: So first, I think that the importance of the attorneys in the family courts in New York um, is uh, I, I, it's critical. For people who are lawyers, going to court may not seem to be the grinding experience that it can be for um, people who are not familiar with the legal system. It's difficult enough for lawyers. Imagine when you and you do not understand anything that is happening. And and add to that the fact that many of our survivors are immigrants. Many of our survivors um, do not speak English. I mean, and 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 um, are fully unfamiliar with the systems at all. There are survivors that are hearing impaired. I mean, there are there are numerous issues that present um, with the survivors. And that's one of the reasons that although I said that family court is a pro se court, many of the courts try very hard at the very outset of when somebody comes in for a petition. It's very common now for family court to refer them immediately to an advocacy organization and say, let's start, you start there. Okay. Don't start this process alone. Start this with some assistance. Advocacy organizations often have attorneys, but sometimes the advocacy organization will um, reach out to a legal services organization. So civil legal services and family law attorneys um, are the ones who appear in family court on behalf of the petitioners. And of course, they're critical to the process because it is a court of law and a judge is going to preside over the hearing and evidence must be presented to the judge. And thinking about that and about what types of evidence the judge needs to hear to make a compelling argument on behalf of the survivor is, is critical to the case. And that's what lawyers are trained to do. Especially, I just want to add that one of the most important things in domestic violence is that the incident that happened that brought the victim to the family court is never the only incident between the parties. And and getting that information to the judge about the prior history of abuse and corroborating, if you can, sometimes the prior history of abuse is critical to getting the order of protection Uh, for the victim and also for getting appropriate visitation and custody determinations. Now, there are many places in terms of, you know, getting involved um, with this issue for attorneys and non-attorneys. So in no particular order, you can reach out to your local bar association If you reach out to the local bar association, they will immediately connect you with organizations that are desperate for your help because domestic violence victims call bar associations constantly for assistance. That's sometimes, you know, where the police and everybody else will tell them, call the local bar association. So they will for sure have um, a way to connect you with an organization that can use your help. Many counties have domestic violence stakeholder teams. Most of the time, the stakeholder teams um, uh, include lots of different agencies that are in the counties and advocacy organizations, uh, um, and it be, can be religious organizations. It, it, there, it, It's a very wide net. So sometimes Chamber of Commerce is involved. So if you can, if you... Look, you can Google, you know, your local domestic violence stakeholder team or domestic violence coordinating council, and it is likely that you will find something online about that and can uh, reach out to the stakeholder team and see if you can join the team um, or join an agency that's a part of the team. And those stakeholder teams are also very important. They try to create a more seamless and coherent experience for the survivor. And um, of course you can volunteer at numerous legal services agencies uh, also to assist them in terms of their work with domestic violence victims. I think that's about it
0: for now. I wanna thank Lisa Smith, Chief Counsel, Family and Gender Violence at the Office of Policy and Planning, New York State Office of Court Administration, for your time and your expertise. Thank you so much for joining us today and I hope we can talk again.
1: Thank you very much.